Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. Romans 12 calls for us to practice hospitality, or as another translation puts it, to be inventive in hospitality. 19th century author George MacDonald was renowned for how he approached this calling in his own household, in his relationships, in his conversations, and even in his books. In this episode, we're taken deeper into the life and work of this literary giant by Dr. Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson, who is by all accounts one of the world's most passionate scholars of MacDonald and his work. She also happens to know a thing or two about inventive hospitality herself. What Jennifer has experienced in the homeliness of George MacDonald is not accidental. I believe, and I think Jennifer's made very evident, that it's something that MacDonald was quite intentional about in his writing, inviting readers and listeners in, making them feel welcome and included, regardless of where they're coming from, wanting them to know that God loves them thoroughly and that God is home. MacDonald recognized and embraced the call to participate with God in making others feel welcome, in making others feel belonged. I'm going to turn that into a verb. Jennifer's not alone in finding MacDonald hospitable, and I know that there are others of you here in the room who've also found his text to be so. MacDonald's contemporaries found his home and his family and his very presence to be hospitable. In fact, the McDonald family became renowned for their hospitality. I'm going to introduce, or if you've already met him, invite you into mo- knowing more deeply this artist, George McDonald, and some of how he became such a hospitable artist. Lewis called him, there we go, that's working, the greatest genius of what could ha- perhaps be the greatest of all arts, an art Lewis identified as mythopoesis. Now, that's a pretty dang high accolade, the greatest genius of perhaps the greatest art. What Lewis meant by mythopoic artist was, in brief, someone who didn't just craft stories, but crafted stories that have something within them that have the potential to transform the reader. I think understanding how key an attitude and practice of hospitality was to MacDonald will also help us to better understand his mythopoic artistry. Now, MacDonald was a philologist, not to the extent of Tolkien. He did not create languages, but more like Lewis in that he loved etymology and context and took them seriously. And he himself was a polyglot. He could read and write in at least nine languages. Nine. Indeed, some of his, some of MacDonald's etymological exploration shaped those of Owen Barfield that ended up being part of Tolkien's argument that helped Lewis see the truth of the gospel. How's that for some wordplay legacy? I think that's not just helpful then, but highly appropriate to take a quick look at the word hospitality, how it's used in Romans 12 before delving into McDonald's biography. I want you to hear it in light of what Jennifer has shared. And I'd like that to inform how you hear more of McDonald's story. 
I think that will help us to understand to a greater depth how MacDonald became a practitioner of hospitality, both in his person and in his art, and in so doing became a Hutchmoot ancestor, great-great-grandfather Hutchmoot, if you will. When Paul urges his readers to practice hospitality, the context is part of an explanation of what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to not conform to the pattern of this world, a countercultural challenge. McDonald's not talking about simply inviting someone into your home for meals or accommodation. In, sorry, not McDonald. <laughs> Paul is not simply talking about that. Because in Paul's world, that was that sort of hospitality, inviting someone into your home and for food, is much more of a cultural norm than it is for us today. A norm that is as long as people were of the same race and religion. The Greek word Paul uses is philoxenia literally love of strangers. Basically the exact opposite to xenophobia, fear of strangers. Thus to practice hospitality is to practice an attitude of welcome, not only with those with whom we are familiar, within our family or our community who get our language and ways, but with those who are very different from ourselves, with those who are outsiders. It's pulling those people in. What Paul is challenging people to in Romans 12, then, is something that transcends socially normal actions. What he's exhorting is a potentially more uncomfortable practice, though also a potentially more rewarding one. When we read the passage in context, we realize that he's challenging his readers to practice being hospitable in their very being. With sincerity, he says. With patience. With joyful hope. Sharing with those in need. Blessing those that are cruel to you. You probably know how it continues. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Perhaps it's also helpful to think of Christ in this sense. We read in the Gospels of a Christ who is transient. He doesn't own a house into which he is hosting lots of people. What he exhibits is incredible hospitality of spirit. Going through the motions of culturally appropriate hospitable provision, a food, a couch, or bed, is comparatively easy. But even figuring out how to be hospitable in spirit whether when opening one's home or opening one's conversation can be a challenge, let alone then putting it into practice. Interestingly, the Latin root hospice means both host and guest. That welcoming spirit of hospitality is something that can be practiced by both sides. We can be hospitable to someone we have invited into our space, but we can also be hospitable to those who have invited us into their space. Here, for example, for some of you, this is a space in a community that you know well. For others of us, it's a new space. The simple invitation to be here, the way in which the Petersons and Jennifer and the Hutchmoot team have exhibited that, um, to partake in the communion of both conversation and food, that's a hospitable act that creates space for a hospitable spirit, something in which both you old hands and us new folk can partake. Okay, let's shift with our philoxenia 
and hospice over to McDonald himself. And that spirit of hospitality that Jennifer is not alone in discovering or in finding inspirational. It is dangerous to get me to talk about McDonald too much because I can go on for hours, um, most especially about how various aspects of his life and community shaped who he was and what he did, both on the page and in person. And especially as, unfortunately, a lot of McDonald biographies tend to lean on each other with very little primary research and so end up perpetuating misconceptions. What's exciting about the, doing the primary research at places like the Wade Center, in letters, historic documents, etc., is discovering how much more sense his writings make in light of the clarified history. We've only got a little time, so I'm going to romp you through this. And do feel, come, feel free to come talk to Jennifer or me afterwards more about McDonald um, and his family um, throughout the remainder of the weekend, and maybe also to the Downings as well. McDonald was born in 1824. Victorian Britain, Industrial Revolution, a time of rapidly speeding cultural change, not unlike today, I think, in many ways. Um, Here's a picture of, you see the delineation of the highlands and the lowlands. Um, McDonald grew, grew up in an area called Strathbogie, near a town called Huntley, which is right where that red dot is. You see, so just outside the highlands. And I stuck on the map of Britain there so that you can see how remote Scotland is from, from, from London, really, but especially Aberdeen. Um, and I stuck in that note, because for me, I find it really striking. 86 hours for the fastest route from London to Aberdeen, a steamboat. Um, the train came in and McDonald was in his early 30s, so not till after he left home. McDonald was a family, from a family of Scottish exiles in Scotland. None of his grandparents originated in the region of Strathbogie in which he was raised. Um, he was, he himself, these are all just pictures from that area, um, from Huntley and from Strathbogie. So McDonald was of Gaelic-speaking Highlander Scott, although he never conquered Gaelic himself, the polyglot that he was. He, he never, he, it really frustrated him. Um, his family was from Catholic, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and independent churches. A number of them were clergy, um, with some of them being more Celtic in nature and practice, and some of them more federal Calvinist. A wide denominational diversity. Um, yeah, so don't fall into the trap of McDonald just came from a Calvinist background. Not true. A wide, diverse background. Um, McDonald's mother died when he was six, and when his father remarried a few years later, and he deeply loved his stepmother, it was to another Highlander from another clergy family. The area in which McDonald grew up spoke an Aberdeenshire language called Doric. Technically, its own language, according to the EU, akin to Lowland Scots, but with some different words. Um, he grew up on a farm. Let's see. Here we go. Grew up on a farm walking distance from the small town of Huntley, just down the, you know, not too far from his farmhouse, in a family of entrepreneurs and academics. Despite from being from away, as we say in Canada, his father and uncle the two families lived together. His father and uncle were leaders both in their church as well as in the wider ecumenical community. Scotland at the time, in contrast to England, had a stunningly high literacy rate and education level. Due to education being freely available to all classes since the late 15th century through the church. Crazily enough, England's public 
education system does not catch up to Scotland's until the beginning of the 20th century. The difference in literacy rates between the two countries is kind of mind-blowing. MacDonald's father embraced literature and learning throughout his life, and his letters to his son are filled with discussions of the theologians he's reading, such as Thomas Chalmers, the scientists he's reading, such as Charles Darwin, the poets he's reading, such as Samuel Taylor Coleridge, in addition to discussions of the family and neighbors George grew up around from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, the current state of farming, some of the political issues affecting the community, and what was happening in the ecological environment. A close look at McDonald's father reveals someone who is hospitable in every corner of his life. There are so many cool stories about this man. Um, and I'm not going to give you any of them. You're going to have to go look them up. <laughs> but I will tell you this. Although he could speak perfect, proper English, when he was down in the farm market, he spoke Doric for those with whom it was the most comfortable tongue. When attending church with his kids, they would discuss points of disagreement and agreement in the sermon as they walked home afterwards. Disagreement and agreement. When the snow was particularly heavy, he'd even put out a bit of extra grain for the wild birds. In his, hospi in his hospitality to others theologically, when George's father was too tired to walk to his own denomination's evening service, he would t attend one of the other closer churches. And for any of you who've grown up in a small community like I did, that's not very difficult. Um, the town of Huntley was actually recognized at that time as being unusually economical. Sorry ecumenical for 19th century Scotland, and the MacDonald family played an active role in that. Perhaps MacDonald's father and uncles were in part motivated to this, to contributing to the, the ecumenical community because of the more fundamentalist bent in their mother, MacDonald's paternal grandmother. When that feisty woman left the traditional church to join a new conservative independent one, her very Celtic, Catholic-Presbyterian husband stayed behind at the old church. After he died, she famously burnt his fiddle, an incident that MacDonald replicates in one of his novels. She did this because her sons were starting to play it, and she feared that they were being tempted to their father's less restrictive faith. Of course, the action backfired, and in the end, it was actually she who slowly became more open over time rather than her sons becoming more closed. And it should be noted that although she struggled with theological hospitality, she was hospitable in many other ways, including opening her home to orphans and teaching them to read so that they could catch up and get on in school. Whilst McDonald's grandmother may have never embraced the arts as fully as her children and husband, we don't know, um, but certainly the house that McDonald grew up in was full of music and languages and poetry and fairy tales and classic literature and more. Now, the most famous Christian teacher in Scotland during McDonald's youth was a man named Thomas Chalmers. There's a center here in Tennessee named after him and churches all over the Presbyterian world that bear his name, Chalmers Church. As a 13-year-old, McDonald already knew Chalmers' writings well enough that he could recite sermons by heart at 13. One of Chalmers' key passions was that rapidly growing urban Scotland did not lose the traditional concept of parish. 
that the church, the people of a church, are called to be salt and light to and stewards of the whole neighborhood, the physical community that surrounds that church, regardless of whether the folk in the community participate in their church or not. Um, those of you who have heard Matt and Julie Canlis of Godspeed speak at Hutchmoots before, there's a reason this resonates. Um, we've had many long conversations, the Canlises and I, about Thomas Chalmers and about George MacDonald. They've, the, both of those men have really shaped the Canlises and their thoughts about parish and Godspeed. This concept and practice of parish was still active and functioning in rural Scotland at the time of MacDonald's youth, um, Strathbogie particularly. It was a way of being that impacted education, economic care, how a community integrated all members regardless of their physical or mental differences, and included attentiveness to the physical land, creation, as an important element of one's community. It was something that made it distinctive from the rapidly urbanizing England at that time, and Chalmers was worried that the Industrial, industrial Revolution was also endangering that parish orientation of church and culture in Scotland, in the cities. And so he not only wrote about that concern, but he also set up programs specifically to combat the loss of such community. And it was the ideas of this man that MacDonald was imbibing and memorizing even as a 13-year-old. When MacDonald goes off to university, he focuses on the sciences. He's a mathematician, a scientist. He wants to be a doctor or a mathematician. Um, and while he's there, he heard about a friend of Thomas Chalmers. Oh, sorry, there's a little bit of industrial revolution for you. That's what's happening in the cities at the time. Um, but at university, he hears about a friend of Chalmers named Thomas Erskine. Now, Erskine is really the first great of the great grandfathers of Northwind Manor. Because when he was a young practicing lawyer in Edinburgh, Erskine's elder brother died, requiring him to move back home and to look after and run the family estate called Linlathen. An intensely intellectual inquiring mind after all manner subjects, but especially philosophy, literature, and theology, Erskine turned his home into a place of hospitable retreat, a refuge that combined learning, dialogue, music, and hospitality. To understand the, the inheritance of hospitality, I use that phrase carefully, hang on to that, the inheritance of hospitality that shaped George MacDonald, it's really important to know that just as with Chalmers, Erskine's Trinitarian theology was passionately relational. He was adamant that a dogma, that dogma should never impede relationship with an infinitely loving God. Dogma should never impede relationship with an infinitely loving God, nor with those created in God's image. Erskine's relationally informed faith manifested itself in his modeling the practice of making both one's home and one's conversation places of communion. Although a capable writer and speaker, he made the choice to focus his energies primarily on creating a space at Linlathen in which friends and new acquaintances from diverse theological perspectives, including agnostics and atheists, not only felt safe to engage, but truly felt welcome. They could gather to discuss the interaction of Christianity with philosophy, science, culture, society, but they also knew that at Linlathen, sustenance and sanctuary were proffered to those weary and simply needing to retreat. People like Chopin's star student, Jane Sterling, the writer and self-proclaimed heretic Thomas Carlyle, 
The ethicist and novelist Julia Wedgwood found refuge and rejuvenation at Linlathen, as did eventually a young literature teacher named George MacDonald. Here he met some of these luminaries for the first time. He found it both inspirational and of significant respite, richly benefiting from Erskine's practiced theology. There's a lovely letter from MacDonald's wife Louisa urging him to take some time out to rest there as it has been in the past a place of such restoration for him. At the end, in the postscript, at the end of the letter, she reiterates again and underlines, do go to Linlathen. MacDonald's two most significant mentors likely first met each other at Linlathen, a man named A.J. Scott and another named F.D. Morris. Scott and his wife Anne, I wish I had a photo, a picture of Anne, but I don't know if one that exists, but Scott and Anne were also passionate about commerce concepts of parish and the church's call to engage in community. And so they too modeled opening their home, both for gatherings of welcoming conversation, attended by folks as, diver as diverse as Elizabeth Gaskell, who wrote North and South, um, Renaissance man George Ruskin, actress Fanny Kimball, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, and in later years, a young George MacDonald. Now just stop for a moment and think how amazing the mix of not just conversation, but also mutual observation must have been at those gatherings. These people who may have never, otherwise never engaged with each other, gathering together in the comfort of a home, sharing food and drink and laughter, singing songs, listening to readings. The Scots also invited in those who, know, those who needed longer-term hospitality, and a young George MacDonald stayed with them for a lengthy period when he was ill to give his wife, Louisa, uh, there she is, to give Louisa some respite because they also had several children by then. So MacDonald stayed and was looked after by the Scots when ill. Um, and when I was thinking about that again recently, I was thinking, wow, that's actually not unlike um, I'm thinking of George and the library at the Scots house um, because you guys remember in that hideous strength, those of you who've read it, when Jane is recovering in the house and Ransom comes and what book does he bring Jane to hide in to recover and to recuperate from the horror she's been through? The Princess and the Curdy. Um, and he just calls it the Princess and the Curdy in the book. But the Princess and Curdy is what Ransom gives Jane um, to read while she's recovering. And I think it's, it's, it's striking to me that when McDonald's at Scott's house, that's where he discovers German fairy tales. And he spends his time there recovering reading fairy tales. A.J. Scott, like Erskine, was especially renowned for being hospitable in his person, not just his home. Ruskin and Carlyle were both deeply enamored by this quality. For John Ruskin, it meant that for the first time, he found a space in which he could begin to piece back together his faith. He found a faith that allowed for love of story and myth outside of scripture, as well as renewed delight in the story of scripture itself. For Carlyle, well, Carlyle wrote to his mother about spending time with Erskine and Scott, and about their friendship for him, despite their differences with him. He marvels. It teaches me again that the best of religious people are the best one will find in any class whatsoever. The radical members, the ambitious, vain political people, and literary people, and fashionable people are to be avoided in comparison. Mm -hmm. 
Erskine and Scott even helped Carlyle by reading through and editing some of his manuscripts. And in doing so, these mentors of MacDonald also modeled hospitality of vocational time and gifts, making space to help a friend with his work, even a friend that they didn't agree with on a lot of things. Who knows what ways they actually ended up influencing the writings of Thomas Carlyle. And this was another practice that MacDonald himself would later replicate with his own friends and colleagues. Down in London, Scott and that other mentor, F.D. Morris, were really significant Christian voices in all sorts of social issues, especially around voting rights and education rights for women, for working class people, for non-Anglicans. You could only get a degree in England from Oxford or Cambridge if you were male and Anglican and, you know, implicitly upper class. That was it. These guys fought against that and helped found the universities that started educating people outside of those parameters. Their praxis was very carefully undergirded by their Trinitarian theology. Like Erskine, like Chalmers, they focused theologically on a loving and relational God and to what his hospitality called them. We don't have time to talk about how that relational theology ended up with them creating the discipline of English literature. That's a whole nother lecture. <laughs> but that's what happened. Their relational theology called into being the whole discipline of English literature. So those of you who are English lit mit on majors or have enjoyed English lit classes, it's thanks to these guys. A.J. Scott the man McDonald names as his most significant mentor, was the first ever full-time English literature professor. That's the man. As literature teachers, Scott and Morris also carved out a new phase in the practice of literary criticism. Essentially, the careful review and analysis of text. That's what literary criticism is. Like the reviews that the Rabbit Room site gives of books or movies. The 19th century poet Matthew Arnold, for those of you who are lit people, he usually gets the credit for this new phase, but actually he's barely into his teens. I think he's 14 years old when Scott and Morris are first teaching and writing and practicing literary criticism. What's significant for us today, not only as current or future readers of MacDonald, but as readers and engagers of all art, is again how their relational theology shaped their critical practice, which then thus shaped MacDonald's. These men brought their Romans 12 attitude of Philoxenia and hospice to their responses to a text. F.D. Morris reminds his audience that a careful reading of a book or article not only engaged with the text, but with the mind of the person who wrote that text. Scott and Morris believe that attentive reading is essentially an intentional conversation between author and reader. And thus for us readers, it's an opportunity to make contact with great imaginations of the past. How often do you think about that? In reading someone's book, you're actually making contact with their imagination. When discussing how to do critical response, Morris adds that, I'm gonna read his quote here, because I find it so powerful. A principle which I wish should always be taken for granted when we read or indeed when we watch a movie or a performance, listen to some music, reflect on some visual art. When we read and interpret carefully in an attitude of cheerfulness and obedience to the Holy Spirit, our work can thrive. So when we read and interpret carefully in an attitude of cheerfulness and obedience to the Holy Spirit, 
our work can thrive. But if we're resistant to that obedience to the spirit, or read or watch or listen with pride, our work, our critical response will be inevitably marred. How many literary critics do you think hold that in front of their heads? How many movie reviews have you done? Responses to a concert. Um, our responses will be marred if we're not seeking to be obedient to the Holy Spirit in our responses to that work of art. And I've personally found this a really good challenge when picking up my pen or keyboard before I publish. So easy to be excited about, yeah, that's a great turn of phrase. I really got that person there, pointed out their whole, that's, that's my pride intervening. It's important to share this with you some of McDonald's own personal and theological family and mentored tutoring and hospitality from these people. Not just that you understand how it pulls together in him, but also how it's key to everything about him, to the very center of his mythopoic being. That McDonald is not independently hospitable. It's not something unique in him that was just in his nature, that his imagination found on its own, he is part of a long inheritance. He was both graced with, and, and this is important for all of us, I think, he sought out specific models. He chose to both receive from and partake in their hospitality. This mentoring helped him and his wife, Louisa, as they brought their own persons and place to that Romans 12 practice. Knowing this background, it should then be no surprise that this student of Chalmers and Erskine and Scott finally becomes so famed for his own praxis of hospitality. Now, contrary to what some of you may have read, MacDonald was not a failed clergy turned author. <laughs> In fact, he was only fully employed minister for, does anybody know? I haven't, like, said this to several times, how long was McDonald a professional minister? <laughs> oh, you, you read, okay, okay, blow my bubble. 29 months, 29 months, whereas he was a professor and lecturer of English literature for over 40 years. Whilst he did guest priest, preach for free for the, throughout his life, he was a pastor in person. He was passionate about this new discipline of English literature. And in addition to doing classroom work, he gave and became quite famous for literary lectures, basically free evening classes throughout Britain, Ireland, um, Italy and France down the south, um, but also here in the States. He came in 1872 and spent a long time traveling, through, especially on the eastern seaboard, um, giving lectures to packed out rooms on British literature. Those of you familiar with his novels will recall how even in his fiction, he's frequently unpacking literary text or poems. So lose from your heads, those of you who have it, MacDonald the Minister, and replace with it George MacDonald the Literature Prof, or if you prefer, George MacDonald the Story Steward, the story stewarding professor who's also a dad, 11 kids, an author, an amateur thespian, and a practitioner of hospitality. By the time MacDonald is a young teaching dad, an increasingly popular writer and lecturer in London, he and Louisa have a rather large home on the Thames called The Retreat. The year they moved in, MacDonald wrote about placing one's imagination in good company. And this is the... Um, Dishavorts is where this is. Um, he writes about placing one's imagination in good company 
and of using one's imagination to devise how to make home blessed or how to help the poor neighbor, using your imagination to do so. The hospitality that he and Louisa practiced was cultivated in rich soil, but also with intentionality. And it's indeed here that their joint hospitality starts to become worthy of legend. There was much that the rural Scottish MacDonald found jarringly missing in the metropolitan London. And the community practice of parish was one of the things that he found missing. England's much more rigid class system exacerbated the issue substantially. In Scottish schools, the Laird's child might even share a desk with the cobbler's child. But in England, not only did these two never socially mix, but the cobbler's child wasn't even literate. And so one of the many social actions the McDonald family undertook was to practice hospitality in a manner that integrated their immediate physical community in creative and imaginative fashion. When I first read of the lawn picnic parties that the McDonald family would host with theater and dancing, gathering paupers and poets, priests and princesses, and I'm being literal with those tags, all in mixed attendance, I was delighted and amazed. But now that I better understand the rigidity of the class system in England at the time, and not just how countercultural, but even socially unacceptable many contemporary Christians thought that whole picture was, well, I now recognize it as an act of defiance. Defiance against socially acceptable schism refusing to conform to the pattern of this world. McDonald spent much of his life fighting schism. One son identified that as his father's primary mission. Neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free, that drove and guided so much of what McDonald did. For example, simply the choice to put on plays was huge. <laughs> At the time, courts were still arguing whether public education should exist. And while the courts are arguing that, the McDonald family is putting on theater productions that expose even their impoverished audiences, not just to fairy tales, but to Shakespeare, to classical Greek plays, to Zola and Dickens, the scripts mostly written and transposed by Louisa. Theater was still seen in many, by many in proper society as decidedly improper, if not unchristian. Public readings of something like Shakespeare or Dickens was okay, but not acting it out on stage. Um, McDonald actually explores this dilemma in his Malcolm novels, for those of you who've read that may recall that. The McDonald family brilliantly flummoxed this attitude by holding presentations of Pilgrim's Progress, <laughs> the book considered next most holy after the Bible. People would attend expecting a reading, and then they would discover that they were actually at a play. <laughs> That's George in costume there. He was usually great heart. And they were suddenly faced with this question. Could it really be wrong to watch a play if it was Pilgrim's Progress? <laughs> and even if folk got over the barrier of watching a play, there was also the fact that the McDonald's and their children were on stage were often dragging, dragging their various friends up there with them. 
Um, Lewis Carroll had great fun in helping them, particularly with the production of The Light Princess, um, but with other plays too. It was bad enough that the McDonald's were letting their family and guests intermingle, intermingle with bohemian types, but actual professional actresses were often considered no different from prostitutes in acceptability in the early to early mid-Victorian era. And these people were putting their children on stage with such people. Definitely not respectable. Nonetheless, the McDonald family performance of Pilgrim's Progress over time became rather renowned. They eventually performed it um, and many other plays as well, including a lot of Shakespeare plays all over Britain and in southern France and Italy. Studies of theater at the turn of the century actually give the McDonald's credit not just for helping return theater to acceptability, but specifically for helping revive the medieval church's mystery plays. So on many levels, these gatherings of friends and strangers, mixing of a multiplicity of peoples was in itself a very hospitable act, definitely far outside the social norm or even general social comfort level. In addition to the multiple gatherings the McDonald's had and the plays that they performed, they were continuously opening their door to people who needed refuge and respite, just as McDonald himself had found at Llanlathan and with the Scots. The letter from this young upper-class woman helps make clear that the fact that they made their table or spare beds available is not what made this space hospitable. She writes, I've just been playing some of the songs that Greville, the McDonald's oldest teenage son, used to make on his violin used to make his violin sing so beautifully. The notes brought you all into my heart until it ached to see or hear or know something of you all. How often I think over the days I spent under your wings, until it's almost as if I saw and felt the very same scenes all over again. That first afternoon that I came over to the retreat and sat in the red velvet armchair and saw your husband and you and took in drafts of peace and kindness from both of you, our walks and talks in the garden, the pleasant suppers and breakfasts with your guests and the children, a rose on the river, my admiration of daughter Mary's prowess, Greville's playing violin in the evening, Bits of afternoon spent in the presence chamber, half hours sitting there alone, looking out at the broad, noiseless river, which always brought to my mind those words, then had thy peace been as a river. Little walks with the children. Oh, such a flood of thoughts come over me that I cannot help stopping my music and getting a pen and ink and asking you to sit down as soon as you get this and send me your love and say how it is with you and all of those who are nearest your heart. And I send my love to you and the children and especially their father. I know about you guys, but for me, that description is strikingly resonant of Samwise Gamgee's description of Rivendell, the last homely house east of the sea. The house was perfect whether you liked food or sleep or work or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best, or a pleasant mixture of them all. There's a famous current historian who's writing today who actually comments on the fact that this woman, Rose, visited the McDonald's. Um, he obviously doesn't know McDonald that well. Um, he writes that she must have found being in their home shocking as there were few servants, lots of children, and the family often did housework and made food themselves and were even known to have guests join them in the washing up. <laughs> in his catalog of all, the McDonald, all that the McDonald household was lacking, 
this historian clearly had no sense of what this visitor found present in abundance. Philozenia and hospice. And she went back many times. When the McDonald's eventually had to move to Italy for health reasons, um, both McDonald and several of his children struggled with TB. A group of people decided to gather together to help them build a very large home in the seaside town of Bordighera. Essentially, this was Victorian crowdfunding. <laughs> and truly, it's striking that those who contributed to this gift fund included, again, people from all strata of life. An earl, a countess, a princess, lawyers, politicians, academics, readers, poets, and former students, the respectable and the less so. Bordighera was one of a number of towns along the French and Italian Riviera, full of British expats hoping to benefit from the warm and dry climate. The McDonald's new home, they called it Casa Coraggio, and this is a picture um, done by one of McDonald's daughters, became, actually the one named Irene, um, became a center for visiting and resident, residential Brits. Um, but it was also a place where local Italians of any class were welcome. And that was something, again, that was not um, really acceptable to all their English visitors. They found that quite uncomfortable, um, if not worse. In fact, the McDonald's made, they both made welcome a space for the Italians interested in mixing with the English in their home, as well as having concerts and performances intended specifically for their audience, their Italian audiences, which again, I find very movingly hospitable. You know, they both presented things for people who wanted to mix, but for the Italian peasants who weren't really comfortable being around those upper class Brits, there are spaces in which they could come and feel comfortable. Um, the gathering room at Casa Coraggio, um, I'm sorry, those are a little, yeah, they're not really distinct, but um, when the room opened up, can you see all those pictures? Um, you can just see the edge of the curtain down, this one with George and Louisa. That curtained off part of the room, they pulled it back, and that could act as a stage curtain, but also make the room bigger. It could fit up to 250 standing people in the room. So generally 100 sitting, roughly, but up to 250 standing. And there's an account of at least one um, Christmas gathering of 250 Italians gathering for one of their presentations. McDonald became a, oh, I have to show you this one. Um, again, it's a bit fuzzy, but these are the McDonald children <laughs> washing the floor, preparing for an event. Um, and that's George and Louise up there. And you can see the curtain there that pulls across. McDonald became a good friend of the local Italian Catholic priest. Again, a really countercultural thing to do at the time. And Louisa played organ music for the Catholic congregation sometimes, as well as playing for the Anglican church of which they are both members. Um, they became Anglicans um, in their young adulthood. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Louisa. I don't know if any of you have read the biography you know the story of her resolutely playing the Hallelujah Chorus through the shaking of a disastrous earthquake. And she just <laughs> kept on playing the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, and Casa Caraggio also became a temporary hospital and refuge after that event. Theater, music events, all manner of soirees occurred here with open doors. Occasionally tickets were sold, but that was for fundraisers for the community, like helping the Catholic Church complete payments for the new building. That was done through an event at the McDonald's house. Louisa and the children gained some renown for being able to make sumptuous costumes and picturesque decor from a pile of cast-offs and whatever nature proffered outdoors. 
Sometimes they would create elaborate tableau of famous medieval and renaissance paintings and invite in, again, both the upper and middle class expat Brits as well as the lower class neighborhood Italians. A local fisherman could be sat next to a British aristo, such as Lord Mount Temple, who wrote, Coraggio, it's the very heart of Bordighera, the rich core of it, always raying out to all around and gathering them to itself. Sunday evenings were times of worship, story, and song, open to whomever, often up to 100 in attendance. And lecture evenings occurred regularly as well, with MacDonald discussing a Shakespeare play, Dante's Commedia, or Robert Burns. At times, he even gave literature courses. I did promise some of my friends back in Canada, my young neighbors, I'd be sure to tell you this. The Bordighera community even knew that when a white flag was run up the pole at the top of the McDonald's house, and I, I, I think you can see that in that picture. So when that white flag is run up, it meant that charades were going to happen that evening. <laughs> and all keen were welcome to come play. Isn't that awesome? Unfortunately, I live in the country, so it doesn't really work so well. But, you know, because they wanted to do that out in our neighborhood too, but I think that's awesome. Friends, acquaintances, and strangers would come to talk through ideas and seek advice with the McDonald's. One wanted to know if he'd still be serving God if he ran a cultural and art center instead of remaining a priest. Another wanted to know if God would keep welcoming her even if she kept on giving up on his grace. There are letters upon letters referring to such exchanges in various archives. And Jennifer's letter gave you a great sense of that, too. Here's a moving one from a name that you might know. Um, Georgiana Burns-Jones, wife of the Pre-Raphaelite artist. And she was an artist in her own right, too. She writes to Louisa. My dear friend, you once said that though you only meant to take in young people to your house... If ever I needed to have rest and change to Bordighera, you would receive me. Are you still of that mind? For I am very tired. Not ill, but tired beyond words. And I believe if I could come out to you for a month, I should be mended for a year. Supposing that you will let me come, will you let me know how soon it might be and whether anyone you know is likely to be coming out soon who would let me travel with them? Also, kindly tell me the terms on which you would receive a stranger and let me fulfill those, and yet remain your debtor always. I've been overwhelmed with my work lately, and when someone said today, why didn't I go to Bordighera? It seemed to me the only place in the world I would care to go just now. Reminds me of go to Linlathen. My husband is quite willing for me to go. He's well and busy, and the children are near him, and I shall hope to bring back fresh life for myself and for him. I'm not a troublesome inmate of a house, and I love you all, but if it's not convenient for now, will you tell me of some place close to you? Ever your affectionate, Georgiana Burns-Jones. I've also come across an interesting note from the wife of another Pre-Raphaelite artist, Jane, wife of William Morris. Here's an, expert, an excerpt of that one. I returned all the little things you were so kind as to lend me when I was born Bordighera. So many thanks for them and for all your kindness and sweet sympathy during my stay, which would have been forlorn, forlorn enough without you all. And now I'm going to ask you to do one more thing for me, and that is to accept what I enclose, clearly a monetary gift, and employ it in any way you choose. I know you have many generous schemes on hand, and I should like to feel that someone benefited by my visit. 
With much love to you and the family, always your affectionate friend, Jane Morris. Hospitality evoking hospitality. 30 years after his last visit to Casa Coraggio, or Casa Coraggio, the Anglican missionary and social worker Wilson Carlyle, canon at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and a man who appears with his trombone in every single photo I saw of him, regardless <laughs> of that age. <laughs> Seriously, whatever age he was, he always has his trombone, which really makes me want to learn more about him. Um, he wrote, the picture of McDonald sitting in his study is still fresh in my mind. This is 30 years later he writes this. The picture of McDonald sitting in his study is still fresh in my mind. His splendid hospitality with an almost empty pocket amazed me. His keen eye could see beauty and reveal it even when all around seemed ugly and repelling. He, radi he radiated divine love. From the socially stigmatized Jane Morris to a canon of St. Paul's, MacDonald and his family opened their hearts and home to folk in a manner that clearly communicated and provided welcome. Just as at Lumlathen and the Scott Soirees, though I would say arguably on an even more successful standpoint class-wise, not only did the MacDonalds proffer and invoke hospitality, but their guests benefited from each other. Just like at Lathan and the Scots, they learned from and were inspired by each other, whether in conversation, inspiration, or even through the gifts given to the household that were then made accessible to all visitors, such as the Turner sketchers, the Turner sketches from Ruskin, the medieval manuscripts given to them from William Morris, the oils given to them from Arthur Hughes, and you can see um, a huge gleaner up there on the wall there. Um, the pipe organ paid for by Louise's brother. Many guests who would have never had exposure to such art and experiences did through the shared friendships of the McDonald's. Everyone came away different for having participated in the spirit of hospitality honored there. This same eagerness to share persons incarnate, each with the other, was enacted in McDonald's text as well. That's some of the fiction for you. Um, this eagerness is more explicit in McDonald's realistic novels. Those of you who've read some of them will have noticed how often he's introducing other writers especially, but also artists of various mediums. In his first realistic novel, David Elgenbrod, McDonald directly, directly names or quotes more than 90 other authors. He continued to do so in all of his writing, even his fantasy. Um, he was as keen to introduce his readers to other good company as he was the people who gathered in his home. In his anthology of poetry, England's Antiphon, McDonald describes his endeavors as being the act of a master of the hearing. He calls himself, I am the master of the hearing. For my aim shall be to cause the song that these other people have written, to cause their song to be truly heard. To set forth worthy points in form, in matter, and in relation. To say with regard to the singer himself, its, his time, its modes, its beliefs, such things as may help to set the song in its true light. Its relation namely to the source from whence it sprung, which alone can secure its right reception by the heart of the hearer. This is the student of Erskine and Scott, hospitably introducing readers to writers. 
but not just so that those readers might come to understand beautiful insights, but this is crazy, but they might actually participate in a celebration of God's glories with those writers. Listen to this. When we read rejoicingly the true song spreets, sorry, let me try that again, and then you'll be able to listen to it. When we read rejoicingly the true song speech of one of our singing brethren, say, when kingfishers catch fire or Herbert's love, when we read rejoicingly that text, we hold song worship with him or her. And with all, so we hold song worship, we are worshiping with the writer. But also, we are worshiping with all who have thus at any time shared in his feelings, even if he's passed centuries ago into the high countries of song. Just think of that amazing invitation that we are being invited to worship with not only the authors who wrote these amazing poems or songs or stories, but also with all the other people who have done so between us and that text being written. Um, and you Narnians will recognize the source of one of many of McDonald's uh, phrases that end up in Lewis, the high countries. McDonald is so keen to invite us, you, me, to come worship and delight with these friends. And I think this is important, that it's not just with the friends with whom he wholeheartedly agreed. Like Erskine and Scott's hospitable love and sharing of Thomas Carlyle, MacDonald had many friends with whom he disagreed. Those of you familiar with Matthew Arnold will know just how deeply antithetical some of his ideas are from MacDonald's. And indeed, MacDonald actually actively counters some of MacDonald's writing in his own work. Yet, he also includes Arnold in his anthology, calling him a faithful doubter. I don't know much about their personal relationship, but there's a passage in this letter that I found in the Beinecke Library that's certainly indicative of the reciprocity evoked in McDonald's hospitable attitude towards Arnold. It was, this letter's written just after the death of Arnold's young daughter. So Ar Arnold's responding to McDonald. My dear McDonald, you are one of those whose formidable thoughts and kind feelings I especially value. So I must not leave your letter without a word of acknowledgement, though it will be a word only. We have had a heavy blow, and a blow of which the full force can hardly be felt at first, but must come out gradually as time comes on. Mrs. Arnold bears things quietly, but it is for the mother who stays at home and has not the movement and distractions of our daily work that these blows are most terrible. We're going away to the seaside tomorrow, and I hope the change will do her good. I do not quite like your writing from Hastings. Hastings was a place that people went to when they were sick. I don't quite like the fact that you're writing from Hastings. It looks as if you were not strong yet. You shouldn't work overwork yourself, though you have many temptations. I constantly notice how your words make way and how warm as well as wide is the intent felt in them. Remember me kindly to Mrs. MacDonald. She wrote a kind letter to my wife about the boat race, not knowing of our loss. Ever gratefully yours, Matthew Arnold. I constantly notice how your words make way and how warm as well as wide is the intent felt in them. Thus writes the often harsh and suffer no fools Matthew Arnold to George MacDonald. 
This is what Jennifer found in Fantasties and in The Princess and the Goblin. This is what John Ruskin found in Diary of an Old Soul. And this is why C.S. Lewis recommends unspoken sermons as a gift to friends curious about Christianity. Rather than me or Jennifer continuing to describe the hospitality that you can find in McDonald's writing, we obviously urge you to go discover it for yourself. Pull up beside his textual hearth. Enter into his mythopoic stories, his sermons, his essays, and receive the homey welcome. But also observe and watch that welcome because hospitality is intrinsically invitational. Hopefully this sketch of the largely hospitable environment in which McDonald was raised, the mentors which he observed, received from, modeled, imitated, the ways in which he brought his own unique imaginative response to that perpetuation of their legacy will feed your imagination. Perhaps how he invited others into participating in Philozenian hospice with him will help mentor your own continued transformation. Stick away in your memory the McDonald's on stage, at picnics, raising funds, delighting in poems and stories together, sharing letters, simply meeting and learning to respect and enjoy those outside of their normal sphere or comfort zone, giving as the angels give. The years of doing that, in partnership with his wife and children, of drawing the very friends with whom he is hospitable to into sharing the joys of practicing hospitality with him, of actively doing the same in his texts? Really, how could his writings then be anything other than invitational homemaking for a hospice reader like Jennifer and so many others? So I ask you to imagine, I asked you earlier to imagine how amazing it would have been to be at Linlathen or the Scots at those soirees to receive and participate in that hospitality. I hope you also glimpsed a bit of the same at the retreat and Bordigueras that happened there. But look around you now, here, and I charge you, be imaginative. Go give as the angels give. Thank you. Mm -hmm.